Welcome to the Barely Science Podcast. This is the Barely Science Podcast, and we are the Barely Scientists. My name is Alec. And my name is Ryan. Now, dear listener, you may notice that the sultry sound of our voices is coming to you in very high fidelity, especially compared to our first episode. Yes, that was a not a low, that was a very low bar to pass, let's be honest. Um, so we have some very exciting news. Um, for those of us, for those of you who are following us on social media, um, we teased this a little bit. Um, we are now coming to you from the podcast studio at, for the, at the Center for the Public Awareness of Science. Um, and from now on, that these podcasts will be brought to you now with the help of CPAS at the ANU. It's a very big help because we wouldn't have gone about this otherwise. Now, speaking of social media and Facebook, um, you can't help but notice that the social media these days is a flush with memes, a flush with the dankest of memes. I spend my days searching for the very best, uh, much to my supervisor's uh, displeasure. Oh, are you saying that you, you waste your PhD-sponsored time browsing Facebook? No, I'm saying that in my breaks that I require for my intellectual sanity, I, I resort to memes. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite meme pages that's come up pretty recently, I think a lot of people in our friendship group have started to get around it as well, is the, the great UNSW Flat Earth Society. It's a brilliant page uh, It's <laughs> very informative posts. Oh, it's great. Um, but it kind of, it got me thinking a little bit because I think most people, we, we like to have a laugh at people who believe that the earth is genuinely flat. We all think that the earth is a lovely sphere or spheroid. Um, but, and we think people who have this idea that the earth is flat are just utter nutters. Are they? It, it's an interesting thing to think about because I, I posed this question to my housemate and I said, okay, could you actually show to someone who was raving to you that the earth was flat, could you prove to them, could you give, what evidence could you give that the earth is actually round? Or a sphere. Or a sphere, indeed. Um, so it's actually a relatively, it's a really interesting thing if you want to start to dive mm. into it, even though it's something that we like to poke fun at a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, earlier, when I used to give talks to classes, uh, I'd often open with the question of, is the earth flat? And what evidence do you have to support it being either flat or a sphere? Uh, that was interesting because it got them thinking about evidence rather than thinking about what they've been told is the truth, which is something we'll explore. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that's been around for a while, actually, the kind of the slander of a, a flat earther, as in, going, Yo, you think you're so stupid, do you think the earth is flat? Um, and it turns out that this act, this... Um, use of it as an insult has been around since about like the 14th century um, as in using this as an idea of you know you're an idiot but actually since from about that time for, so in all those you know a couple of thousand years or so or a bit under the majority of the populated education of people on earth have known or have believed that the earth is round really yeah so it's it's not it's a relatively it's a very very it's a it's a myth that's been around for a long time that, that a lot of people think that the earth is flat or that the ancients believe that the earth is flat because people a long time ago still had evidence that the earth is round. Yeah, that's a fascinating myth that's kind of perpetrated. But it seems to have gotten a revival lately with social media. It's often you see these fights breaking out between people saying the earth is flat and 
uh, like Twitter, for example. They have some <laughs> fantastic fights that go on there. Um, and there seems to be no clear winner. So is the Earth flat or is it a sphere? This is what we should look into. Yeah, it's my brief exposure to Twitter as, as of late. Um, it seems that that's all it's for, is for people to argue seemingly meaningless points over the internet. But there's another... It's a good and a bad thing of the internet in that people of similar ideas can come together and discuss them. Mm. But we're going to try and critically evaluate these ideas. But we're coming from a point of being scientists, though. So surely our minds are already biased to to a spherical Earth. Barely a scientist. Well, yes, we're far from it at this point in time. So we'll put that out in the air. We, We are barely scientists, but we'll use our... Uh, scientific understanding to analyze the ideas that get put forward and see if the idea of flat earth weighs up to be barely scientific BS or actual science. Um, so I guess we should go on to some of the the historical stuff of how people first started to work out the earth wasn't flat. Yeah. And a really cool uh, experiment was done by a guy called Eratosthenes quite some time ago. Now, he was one of the librarians in the Great Library in Alexandria, and he noticed one day that there was a report that um, in the solstice, or sorry, in the equinox, um, that there were no shadows cast in the town of Syene at midday. So why would, the, why, did, why would it matter between the solstice or the equinox? Ah, so... What we think the solstice and equinox are from a uh, from our perspective is uh, the equinox is where there is equal time at day and night, so the sun pretty much travels directly overhead, whereas the um, solstices, you can either have uh, the summer solstice, which is the longest day of the year, so you have a short night and a long daytime, or you can have the winter solstice, where you have a short day and a long night. So if there are no shadows cast on an equinox, um, there's something interesting going on. Because in an Alexandria, there were shadows cast at equinox. Mm. So you have this interesting uh, problem where one town doesn't cast shadows and you could see the sun reflected from the bottom of wells and sticks would cast no shadows. But in Alexandria, you wouldn't be able to see in the bottom of wells and sticks would still cast shadows, albeit... Uh, shorter than they would usually be. So Aristosthenes was quite a clever guy, and he thought that there might be some kind of interesting geometry at play. So he waited to until an equinox came around, and he, he hired some poor uh, assistant to walk the distance of um, Syene and Alexandria and measure it very precisely. Sounds like a job for a PhD student. (laughs) It does. Um, So in this case, Eratosthenes is truly the supervisor and the poor PhD student whose name has faded uh, from history. Well, they'll they'll be us one day. (laughs) Um, So after walking all this distance, uh, we'll call him a PhD student. This PhD student found that... uh, uh, there was a reasonable s- distance between the two places. And by using uh, trigonometry, um, Aristosthenes was able to work out if uh, there was no shadows in Syene and some shadows in Alexandria, how you could put that together with the, the measurement between the two places. 
And if that were the case, the Earth would have to be a sphere, and it would have to have a circumference around 250,000 states. Uh, a, a what now? That is an ancient unit, which I have no idea what they defined it from, but they um, used the the conversion to meters is around about 160 meters per stade. Okay. So if you put that together, 250,000 stades, that will go to um, times that by 100, let's say. So now we're up to uh, 250,000 kilometers, which is getting kind of close to the actual uh, circumference of the Earth, which is about 40,000 kilometers. So we did a pretty good job yeah. with um, just his... Uh, calculations from trigonometry and getting a PhD student to walk the length uh, between Said and Alexandria. So, luckily, we don't have to do that kind of stuff <laughs> in our research. Yeah, so yeah, that's not forced upon us, thankfully. Um, but I guess to really kind of drill home the, the picture of what's going on here is that if you're living on a, a spherical world or a cur at least a curved world, mm. Um, if you're, if the sun is directly overhead at one point on the curve and you walk around a bent surface, the sun from an, a point far away, the sun will no longer be directly over your head because you would have curved away along mm. the surface of the earth. And that's why shadows at one place at the same time, so you can use the equinox in this case, mm. will appear, the shadows will appear in one place and not in the other because the sun is at a different altitude in the sky. Mm. But there is, there is a solution that the, the flat earth has proposed, mm. and that um, the sun is actually very close to the earth. And if it's very close to the earth, then um, it will be effectively overhead in some places and cast shadows in others. Yeah. But that's, that's a different problem entirely. Well, that raises other problems, which um, I guess we'll get into as we go along. Um, yeah. One of which is the sun is a very hot place. And if you put it close to us, our atmosphere might have some issues with that. <laughs> so this type of solution making is a, it's what's called ad hoc solutions. It's in that if you come up with some sort of counter to an idea and you go, oh, actually, we can, we can do the small little adjustment and you can keep on kind of doing little tweaks to your original idea. It's a, an ad hoc solution. So it's... It's not actually standing on its own two legs. You have to keep on. It's not making predictions. It's fixing itself up for yeah. observations. Yeah. And it, uh, for an idea to be kind of rigorous and scientific, what we want is, is for it to, you want to be able to prove it wrong. And so it has to be falsifiable like we talked about last week. Um, but also you need to, it needs to be self-consistent. So you can't just keep on adding new bits to it. You want it to kind of stand on its own two legs. Mm. Um, another cool uh, way to measure, measure the circumference of the Earth came from Abu Rahan Baruni. Which we probably, we apologize for any butchering of yes, ancient I'm, or recent names. I, I apologize in particular because of my New Zealand accent. I'll butcher most words as I come across them. Yeah, we apologize. English is not Ryan's first language. It's, it's a hard world out there. Um, so his method was an interesting one. He didn't get a PhD student to, to walk a great distance for him. Instead, he sat atop a mountain, uh, which he measured the height of very accurately. 
and then he worked out how far he could see across a desert from the top of this mountain. And based on how far he could see from the top of the mountain versus lower down, he was able to calculate what the circumference of the earth actually was. So he was measuring to the horizon in this case? Yeah, he was okay. measuring up to the horizon as far as he could see. So this, is, this was quite an advancement because most people spent all their time walking around, but uh, Biruni uh, in particular didn't want to do that because he didn't fancy walking across the hot deserts. So he just worked out how he could use a method of elevating himself above the surface and comparing those measurements so he could actually get something which was pretty competitive with the measurements at the time. Um, and he, he got a radius of the Earth from all his measurements, which was 6,339.6 kilometers. Okay. And that's only 31.4 kilometers different to what we know to be the true radius today. Wow. Yeah, I was just thinking because the, the rough value I have in my head in is about 6,000 kilometers. But uh, hey, that's a crazily close number. He did a very good job. So it shows you that sometimes being lazy can open up new pathways to, to understanding things better. And it's, it saves sending you know, underlings. Uh, off sending walking across deserts and that kind of thing. Yeah. And also you're just doing, you're relying, I guess there are fewer errors in that measurement too because you're not relying on the footsteps of one person versus another. Mm. You're just measuring, you're just relying on knowing the height yeah. of your mountain. Because there would have been errors introduced in Aristosthenes' measurement because uh, the poor person measuring the distance, what if they came across a stone or something? What if they had to take a kind of meandering path along? So you'd have yeah. to calculate uh, the line of sight path based off what you were given by the meandering um, passage. Yeah, and the the idea of a, a horizon, even though it's something that we're all used to, as in where we've evolved and grown up as well, so both ancestrally and just through your lifetime, you're used to seeing a horizon. It's you, things just you can't see past a certain mm. distance. And that kind of idea doesn't really make sense if you're living on a flat plane. How does that not make sense? Well, uh, if, you, if you ignore things like atmospheric attenuation, as in the atmosphere getting too thick to be able to see through, it would mean that if you're living on a flat plane, you should be able to just see on and on up to the edge of where the world that you're living on. But on a, on a sphere, if you're living on a curved surface, then that the land that you're living on will curve away from you and eventually it will disappear behind itself. So what's a way you could go out and test this idea of the earth being curved and things would disappear over an edge? Well, um, so I guess one way I can imagine, which has actually been tested quite a few times, is to watch boats sailing away if you have a large enough harbour. So a large enough body of water, you could watch boats sailing away, directly away from you. Mm. And you'd expect eventually that they would dip below the horizon if they sailed away. Because they fell enough. off the edge of the earth. <laughs> yeah, that that could be an alternate explanation if they. I but see. Depending on whose model of the flat Earth you believe, there might not. The edge is surrounded by an ice wall, very similar to the the Game of Thrones ice wall. Um, so you're telling me Game of Thrones is based off reality? <laughs> Who knows? Possibly. But if there's an ice wall surrounding the edge of the world, why haven't we like crossed it? Ah, so this is where some more ad hoc 
solutions come from. So the to give you an idea, the type of map that we're describing is quite often used by genuine flat earthers. Um, and it's actually based off a type of map called a stereographic projection. And it's actually a really cool type of way of mm. visualizing things on a sphere. Um, it has, I think, angles stay the same, I believe, but area doesn't. Um, so yeah, different projections. So when I say a projection, it's a way of turning a 3D object. So let's say you draw stuff on a sphere and you want to be able to see that on a flat plane. So turning a map of globe, mm. say, to a map that you can put on a table. And a, a stereographic projection um, is imagining you have you sit your globe on a table and you take every point out from... You, sh you can actually... See, uh, there's actually a really cool way I've seen it done where you have like a hollow sphere with mm. stuff cut out on the outside. And if you shine a light from the North Pole, it, all the shadows cast out from that kind oh. of hollowed out sphere will shine onto your table and that will give you a stereographic projection. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so you, sh you basically send out rays from your North Pole and wherever it, it then intersects the sphere and then intersects your table and then you mm. draw a dot there and that's how you can draw a stereographic projection. Cool. Um, and so uh, the UN logo is a stereographic projection, which is pretty cool. Um, but in that sense, so the Antarctica is wrapped around and that's what they what some people claim is the ice wall. And it's guarded by NASA, right? Or guarded by the these evil scientists who yes. don't let people go there. And being barely scientists, we're not clued into to those goings on as of yet. Yeah. Although I, I have you say if you meet people who claim to have gone to Antarctica, apparently according to some, they are the the guards of the ice wall. Um, <laughs> so I guess bring it back to closer to our field of expertise. Um, so mm. we're both budding astronomers. Um, and I, a really nice way of actually being able to see that we're on a sphere is using um, the stars themselves. And you can do this at home, dear listener. You can use this method. Um, and if, you're, if you have enough cash to be able to travel, you can actually do an experiment with this too. So if you go out into the night sky... And if you spend a couple of hours and if it's a clear night with not too much light pollution, you be able to see stars and you be able to see them rotate around. Now, the, the reason why we can is because the Earth is spinning. And so that spinning, us spinning on an Earth, it, what causes the stars to rotate around the sky. But what you'll notice, though, if you have a very keen eye, is that they appear to rotate around a, one particular point. And mm -hmm. we call them the celestial poles. Um, now, the easiest way I like to think of them, if you're on the North Pole, the North Celestial Pole will be right above your head because mm -hmm. you're kind of spinning on the spot. If, or on the South Pole, um, which we're closer to, you can see the South Celestial Pole whirling above your head. Here in Canberra, it's actually, it sits up a bit further above the, low on the horizon, mm -hmm. so it's not directly above your head. Um, and the stars will appear to rotate around that once every 24 hours or about um, 15 degrees per hour. Now what you'll notice is that if you change your location, say between going to the North Pole mm. and then coming down to uh, Canberra or the equator, is that the, the height of those celestial poles will change depending on your mm. latitude. So what's our latitude here? It's roughly like 45 degrees? 30-something, I thought. Oh, 30. I'm going the wrong way. What am I doing? It's <laughs> so minus 30. 34 Sorry. or something around yeah, there? Yeah, 30-something. Sorry, I went the wrong way. Um, You're going to Tasmania. Yeah, I am. Um, so it's roughly 30-something degrees. Now, what you'll notice is that if you then measure the height of where the celestial pole is, mm. that the, the height above the horizon will be your latitude. 
Mm. And it's actually a way that um, sailors have used to navigate for a very long time. Um, similarly, so if you're standing on the, say, the South Pole or the North Pole, it'll be 90 degrees up from the horizon. Mm. So that's, that's your latitude on, on the poles. Um, and then if you're on the equator, you can what you'll see is that you'll actually be able to see both celestial poles. They'll be sitting on the horizon and the stars will be rolling above your head. Um, now, if you don't have the money to be able to travel around, you can actually look up images of this. Um, you'll often see them as what's called star trails. So if you've ever seen those images of stars like creating big circles in the mm. sky, they're often really popular type of images for astrophotographers. Um, that's the place where they're whirling around is the south is the celestial pole, the south or the north one. Um, and if you look at ones at the equator, they just kind of roll directly overhead. Mm. And now this only makes sense. The changing of the height based on your latitude only makes sense on a spherical Earth. Mm. So in that, you're, as you're walking around that circle on the, of latitude, you're changing your angle compared to the sky. And so the, the positions of the stars are changing with you. But if you are living on a flat plane, traveling north to south, it would be very, very strange if somehow all the stars were arranging themselves purely mm. of where you just so happen to be looking at them. And it's true for every single person all at the same time. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's. I guess let's try and think about the geometry of the situation from a flat Earth perspective. Give it, give it some of our mental power. And try yeah. and convince ourselves that this idea of a spherical Earth makes more sense. So if we start out with a plane, so that that's all very good. Yeah. Um, so we need to have over the southern hemisphere, which wraps, which consists of the edge of the plane. The south celestial pole needs to be above there. But yep. it's wrapped around, so the south celestial pole needs to be wrapped around the 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 edge of the disk. Yeah. And the north celestial pole needs to be a point above the center of the disk. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is taxing my, the geometry of my brain a bit, um, and we haven't even talked about how the uh, sun plays into this. Yeah, that, that gets more confusing as well. So we're trying to bend. So you'd have to bend the stars in incredibly bizarre ways in yeah. order to get it um, to work properly, which starts to break down some of these ideas of the celestial spheres and that kind of thing that often go along mm. with an idea of the flat Earth. But it, yeah, so it does work a lot as if the way that we see the stars, we still call it the celestial sphere. We kind of celestial sphere. Mm. We still kind of tip our hat to astronomy's astrology roots, unfortunately, <laughs> but that's just the way they appear. But the reason why they do that is because we ourselves are living on a sphere or well, that makes the most coherent sense. Mm. Um, and of course things get even more strange. If we start I, to consider the sun. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's have a think about the sun for a moment. Okay. So we, we're familiar with the seasons. Everyone experiences seasons in one form or another. Uh, in Canberra, we're uh, at full force of the seasons, going <laughs> from like 40 degrees Celsius in the summer to minus 10 or whatever during the winter, and some nice months um, in spring and autumn. So these seasons are brought on by changes in how much sunlight we get. So I mentioned way back before about the equinox and the solstices. Yeah. So those talk about you getting different amounts of sunlight um, each day, effectively. So the amount of daylight we get 
ignoring clouds, will vary over the course of the year. It will decrease towards winter um, to the uh, solar, um, what's the word for it? It's just gone. Solstice? No, yeah. the, the, the winter solstice. Um, and then it will increase towards the summer solstice. So if you imagine that on a, a spherical Earth, it's quite easy to deal with because you just have the Earth inclined, so it's tilted relative to the sun. So the sunlight um, hits one of the poles more in one part of the year, and as the Earth rotates around to the other side of the orbit, more sunlight would hit the other pole. So you get longer days for one hemisphere and shorter days for the other. But it gets it gets so extreme in the poles in that you get six months of total darkness mm. in the poles and then six months of total daylight. Mm. And you don't even have to go anywhere that extreme. Parts of Canada and you know the United States and Alaska experience this. Yeah, um, you don't have to necessarily be an ice wall guard down no. in the <laughs> south in order to experience this. So we've given the, the nice explanation, or the rather yeah. simple explanation, for spherical objects. But in the flat Earth regime, mm. it gets a bit weird, because if the sun is nearby us so that we can satisfy the Eratosthenes experiment, um, you end up with a problem, that the point source floating above the Earth needs to change its shape and illuminate the disk differently depending on different times of the year. So it has like... Some kind of magical lampshade? That seems to be the running idea. So, say, during our summer, which we're coming towards, the Southern Hemisphere summer, um, the edge of the disk, the Antarctica of this world, will need to receive sunlight 24 hours a day. And the poles will get, or the North Pole will get no sunlight. So this lampshade would need to have high intensity all around the disk edge, and decrease as you go towards the center. But at the same time, you also have a... We don't have 24-hour days in Canberra, so we have a day-night cycle. So you also need this lampshade to give day-night cycle to the rest of the latitudes that aren't the, the poles. So it's a very, very bizarre shape if you want to try and stretch it. And then, and then it needs to be able to morph mm. as we go through the seasons. So as we swap around, eventually it has to warp its shape so then there's a constant sunlight on the north pole mm. and constant darkness on the edge and then still spinning around to provide day-night cycles to the intermediate latitudes. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make much sense. Um, but, you know, it's sure, we'll, we'll uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. Well, in that uh... case, you need to be... So, I guess with any explanatory idea, it has to be able to kind of come all in nice one neat package. Mm. And so you can say, okay, we believe that the Earth is flat for whichever particular reason you like. Mm. Um, but then the consequence you need to have that has to be contained within that too. So mm. the fact that the, the sun is now has to be very close and has to have a weird warping lampshade mm. is that, okay, well, why? Yeah. <laughs> the, the classic why is it so question mm. starts to come up. And, you know, why... Does it have a weird shaping warping lampshade? I'm not necessarily opposed to a warping lampshade. No. I have no, you know, particular vested interest in weird warping lampshades. But mm. I mean, there could be a market for it. Yeah, illuminate different parts of your room with one light. <laughs> um, but I guess what we're getting towards is something called Occam's razor. Mm. Is uh, generally the simplest explanation for something is usually the right one. I mean, it's not correct in all the cases, but it does help science quite a lot in cutting out some of the 
the fluffy, messy theories that go around the place. Yeah. Uh, one key example of it would have been the celestial spheres that um, made the epicycles and all these crazy things to, mm. to fit a Earth-centered universe. And that wasn't the simplest answer, and there was a better model, so the Earth-centered universe got cut out of the equation, which we might talk about on another podcast. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can kind of we can move into some observations that have actually been made too mm. in more more recent times rather than coming back quite so ancient because people have been observing the stars for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Um, it's including both the um, ancient Aboriginals as well as the ancient Greeks and Egyptians. Mm. Um, but I guess we can go to more recently to um, it's oh, I keep on reading this name and it's it's a doozy. So the guy, the guy who did these experiments was a, a, a man by the name of Samuel Burley Robotham. Oh, that's a good mouthful right there. So as you can imagine, this guy was a, a British gentleman. Um, and what he wanted to, he was trying to, he was out to prove the flat earth. Mm. Um, and he came up with actually quite a clever way. Um, of measuring curvature. So mm-hmm. rather than just seeing, oh, things fall off the edge of the of your horizon, he wanted mm-hmm. to measure how much things fall away. Mm. So for a given you know length of flat Earth, if it's curved, as in, I mean, no, when I say flat, I mean no mountains, say. Yeah. So um, a flat body of water is a great example because it mm-hmm. should remain nice and level. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's on a curved surface, you should see an expected amount of falling away from you as it curves away. Mm. And so what Mr. Robotham was looking for, <laughs> so <laughs> over over about, in this case, unfortunately, it's all in miles from his writings, but he was looking for one, for, for one mile, there should be um, a fall of just eight inches. Mm-hmm. But then because it's a, a sphere, the, drop, the amount of drop increases. Mm. So the second mile, you get 32. The third mile, you get 72 inches, mm-hmm. and which, is, which is about the height of a person. Yeah. So for context, a mile is about a bit over one and a half kilometers or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all relatively easy setup to do in a, um, a little a village northeast of the place called Wenley. Um, it has a nice long canal as the United Kingdom is known for, so mm. nice level, flat water, mm. like a big, long 10-kilometer stretch that he could measure this on. And so what he did is he set up a telescope at mm. one end and he set out um, with a friend, set out on a, um, a little boat with a, lo- with a pole with feet measurements on it. Yep. And so he set up his telescope level and he measured how far that his pole appeared to drop below the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he managed to, to measure that. And what he found, and he, he actually he managed to, he wrote it up and he found that there wasn't enough drop. Oh. Yeah. Earth is flat confirmed? Yeah. So <laughs> this, this is a very interesting result. He found that there wasn't enough drop away. Hmm. And so this caused quite a bit of controversy because, you know, people by this time, as I said, from the 14th century or so, people knew that or people had the most people thought that the Earth was a sphere. So this is a very controversial finding that all of a sudden we're seeing that this result is showing flat. He didn't see any drop away. His Mm. pole didn't drop when he looked through his telescope. Um, And so people wrote in and were criticizing and getting very cross um, mm, understandably. Yeah. And so there was a, 
one of the claims that was put against this that what was happening because he was measuring in the United Kingdom, which gets nice and cold mm. and is measuring near a body of water, he's measuring um, what was effectively an effect like a mirage. Right. So he was, had a temperature inversion. Mm-hmm. So normally the ground is warm. And so it heats up the air above it and then it gets cooler as you go up. Yeah. But in a temperature inversion, that flips around. Okay. And that often happens near bodies of water. Um, and so it creates weird atmospheric shifts. Mm. And so because he had his telescope set up next to, the, uh, next to this canal, he was ending up kind of refracting. So the, the, the claim was that the air itself was acting sort of like a lens and undoing... Right the curvature that he was expecting to be seen. Okay. Um, so what makes this not an ad hoc explanation? Well, in this case, he it was an observation. So he said he looked through his telescope. He was being relatively honest, mm-hmm. um, but and he saw no drop. Um, and I guess the claim is that his experimental setup wasn't great, that yeah. he, hadn't, he hadn't taken into account all the factors. Mm. So people were claiming that, you know, when you're looking through a body of air, the air can yeah. do weird stuff to it, which is consistent with what we know. Mm. Um, so optical astronomers like yourself mm. have to battle a constant issue, which is called seeing, which is basically the, the, the atmosphere is shimmering and shaking around, like when you can see it on a hot day or like a boiling yeah. pot of water even, and that causes the light coming through it to shimmer as well. So the air can actually have a really strong effect. It can mm. act like a lens. Um, especially when you start measuring through lots of it. Yeah. You don't notice it day to day because you're usually not looking through a whole lot of it when you're looking at something because yeah. our eyes can't see very far. Mm. But when you use a telescope and you start looking at the detail mm. and things far away, you see through a whole lot of atmosphere, even you know 10 kilometers of atmosphere, yeah. it start, things start to add up and effects start to get stronger. I guess another point is that they're making a criticism on the setup where that it's testable. Yeah. Whereas the other ones with the flat Earth, they, they don't really make any predictions or uh, counter arguments. It's just, well, this has been observed, and this is how we get around that yeah. problem. So, did they go out and test this? Was yeah, the Earth so, flat? Um, there was a lot of challenges to this, um, and in in there was actually a, a friend of Mister Mister Robotham. Um, actually put up a wager of uh, mm-hmm. 500 pounds at the time, which is now worth about 43,000 pounds in modern oh, British terms. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Although not so much since their uh, Brexit. <laughs> um, so he put out an, he put actually an advert out saying, hey, if you can actually show, I challenge you now, all, the, all you naysayers who claim mm. that this experiment was done wrong, he, he challenged them, okay, you get a flat body of water, and if you can measure the curvature of the Earth using a flat body of water experiment, similar to how Mr. Robotham did, mm. I'll give you this 500 pounds. Um, and another gentleman by the name of Wallace took up the challenge, yep. um, and he, he set it up, and then, you know he was short of money. He's like, all right, I could do with an extra you know, 500 pounds or an extra tens of thousands of pounds now. Mm. Um, so he set up on a similar stretch of canal, um, 10 kilometers roughly again. These are long canals. Yeah, the UK has a lot of them. The, some people live on them too. They're quite beautiful though. Mm. Um, so he set up a similar type of thing um, and he set up an object at each end of this canal and mm-hmm. he, he set up in the middle where there was a tall bridge. Yeah. Now, what he believed then is that by being on this tall bridge, he would be above a temperature inversion that okay. might be occurring yep. um, and that he would be not affected by these atmospheric 
bending of the so light. There'd be a little bit of bending, but not as much as Ex- what... Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then he looked to similar things. He looked down to where the posts... And they sh- he set up the posts at the same height as the bridge. Mm-hmm. So when he set up his telescope level, if it was flat, he should see the post smack mm. bang in the middle of his scope. Um, and or if there, if there was curvature, it should appear below. Yeah. Um, and he then, on that setup, he found, surprise, surprise, to... Um, Mr. Hampton and Mr. Robotham, yeah. that the objects were lower than he, he, where he was on the bridge. Oh, remarkable. So what happens now? You've got two <laughs> conflicting observations. Yeah. Well, the, the people, uh, the editors of the magazine in which the wager was published mm-hmm. were the judges and they claimed Wallace the winner. Oh. So, yeah, so he was awarded the 500 pounds. Uh, but Mr. Hampton was very, very cross about that yeah. and launched a years-long campaign of suing him and slandering oh. him in the letters and uh, denouncing him as a swindler and a thief. For, <laughs> all right. But yeah, sure. Very harsh British terms. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but despi- despite all that, it was actually Wallace actually won. So the... So the guy who showed that there was curvature won all these lawsuits because there's people he could. There's a paper it. trail, right? Yeah, you could repeat it. You could go and set up on the same canal. You could show the judges, and he can show that he's not slandering this guy. He's yep. actually just re- reporting the evidence as it, he observes it. Yeah, as in fact, and that's a really useful thing in science is repeatability, mm-hmm. and that you don't take anyone's word for it. And it, it's actually a, I guess, a point when you come to reading any scientific paper. Even maybe even in textbooks, although textbooks is kind of it's stuff has been around for long enough. Yeah, and it's consolidated information. Yeah, but always take what you read. If you're reading a scientific paper, if it's published in a journal, mm. especially a journal like maybe Nature, whether new really new stuff of Nature or Science, where new stuff has yeah. been published, grain of salt with those kinds of findings. Yeah, there's there's been a few kind of high profile science stories that have turned out to be kind of bogus, and mm. um, we should talk about. In another podcast, because it is interesting to see how kind of this slips through the cracks. Yeah. Um, now, despite all that, so it had been uh, the old mate. He ended up with a guy who was being sued. Ended up getting the money, although it took years and years, and it just was all very. So he was short on cash bitter. at the time. So. He would have had court charges? Yeah, well, I, they ended up being paid, but it was still, he had his name smeared through the papers and it was a very long and frustrating process. Um, Did he counter sue for slander? Well, <laughs> it turned out that the Mr. Hampton yep. en- <laughs> ended up being put in prison because oh. he got so cross at Wallace, he was, ended up threatening to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't end up well for, mis- for um, Mr. Hampton. Um, oh. Right. Yeah. This just leaves me somewhat speechless because he was he that sure that his friend must have been right? Yeah. So or was it just he was angry with himself that he made a bad bet? I'm going to lean towards the latter, but who can say what was going on through <laughs> his mind? Um, but then they, it's more recently, they, recently I say in inverted commas, uh, yeah. in 1901, uh, uh, another English guy by the name of, oh my goodness, Henry Yule Oldham. Henry Yule Oldham is a great name. He's yeah. a guy from Cambridge. He repeated the experiment again um, at King's College another, and Cambridge, yep. another place with a lot of lovely canals. And he used um, 
what's called a theodolite. Now, a theodolite okay. is what is actually a, still in use today or modern versions of it. Mm-hmm. It's a surveyor's instrument for measuring angles and mm-hmm. um, distances and doing trigonometry very accurately. Okay. Um, and he was able to take a photograph through it. Um, and he did, repeated the experiment. Mm. And he was able to show again, measuring very carefully, that the poles at each end of a long canal, measured from the middle, top of a tall bridge, mm-hmm. curved down. And mm. so those photographs are actually used for a very long time, taught in schools even, to show that the Earth was spherical yep. before we had photos of the Earth. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. But, of course, we do have photos of the Earth now mm. from satellites all in orbit and... Um, GoPros getting sent up on <laughs> balloons, all these kinds of cool things, which ah. show the Earth is a sphere. But in some cases, people say footage shows the Earth has no curvature in it. Yeah, well, you need to be really careful because I remember um, when, oh, what was his name? The guy who jumped out of the balloon. Oh, uh, Fiewit? No. Yeah. What's his name? I forget. Um, the Red Bull sponsored jumping out of the balloon, um, Baumgartner, possibly Felix Baumgartner. Maybe. Yeah. So that obviously a bunch of GoPros all strapped to the outside of his balloon. Um, and a lot of people claimed, oh, look at that. You can see this, you know, 42 kilometers up and you can see this beautiful curvature. Mm. Uh, the only problem there and that most of what you're seeing was actually curvature from the lens of the GoPros that were attached, mm. like the fisheye type effect and not the actual curvature of the earth itself. Yeah. Um, now, of course, if you go up high enough again on satellites, you can see genuine curvature. But it's, mm. again, you need to be very careful about how much curvature you, you can claim to see. Yes. There was a, there was a very cool, well, not cool, an interesting interaction. Uh, one, of the, one of the kind of key points flat earthers grab onto um, is a while ago, NASA sent up um, some satellites, as they tend to do. One of them was uh, just taking pictures of the Earth from quite far away so they could see the entire Earth in one shot. So they took a picture of North America. Obviously, it's a good thing to do to get funding. Yeah. Um, so they took this picture of North America, and it was the size you'd expect, covering the amount of surface you'd expect. But then a couple of years later, I think it was in 2012 or something, they released this new picture from a different satellite, uh, which showed North America to cover pretty much like a good third of the Earth's surface. But that's even better for getting funding, right? Yeah, so America became much more important <laughs> in the world, apparently, over the, over the couple of years. Um, but the problem is that the flat earthers see this, and they say, well, if you can't even keep your story straight between these years, then it's surely a fabrication. And they are true to a certain extent. It is somewhat of a fabrication. Because the second satellite that took a picture, or took a picture, and commas, inverted commas there. Um, are you saying NASA is falsifying data? They're not falsifying data. They're doing something to make our interpretation of the data easier. Mm. So this satellite orbited very close to the Earth, so it couldn't see the entire globe at a given time. But, of course, they wanted to take the pretty pictures of the US. So what they did was they took over multiple orbits, the satellite took images of strips of the country. And then over time, they'd stitch those strips together and they'd have themselves a nice United States of America. It's like a nice big panorama yeah. stitched together. But there are, of course, projection effects that come into this because you've got, uh, you're, measure, you're stitching stuff together. I mean, if you take a panorama yourself, you'll see that there are um, 
kind of projection effects that go onto these things. So it is a legitimate concern that they had that the uh, size of a country almost doubled in size, uh, probably even tripled or more in size over the course of a couple of years. But it just comes down to you can't believe all photos all the time. So that's a, a lesson to be learned. You can't trust all images to be absolutely correct. You do need to read the subheadings sometimes. Yeah. So if I was going to finish off. We can kind of say, so if you do, uh, if you're in the unlucky situation of debating with a flat earther and you want to try and throw some evidence at them, I, would, I still think photographs, the mm. modern satellite photographs from high up, are the best evidence that we have currently. Yeah. It's direct evidence. Of course, they can claim, if they claim doctoring or whatever, you can then go on to the other things we talked about, like measuring curvature in different ways, mm. heights of the celestial poles, yeah, um, and then also just a general consistency with all the, obs- all the observations. So one final thing is that these ideas in flat Earth, so you say the Earth is flat, mm. um, but then they don't have that requirement on any of the planets or the sun or the moon. They can be spheres. Yeah. So the question becomes why is the Earth flat? Why isn't, like if everything was flat, sure, that's good. And we could disprove that from observations with telescopes. Um, but it's just it's one another one of these kind of ad hoc kind of post-information solutions. So there, there are problems in the flat earth theory. So I, I guess we should give our interpretation of where it lies on the, on the science scale of things. Yeah, look, I'm going to come out and say for a strong BS. Oh, that's, that's, that's some strong language look. right there. <laughs> um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to um, fully agree with you on that one. Now, we are, we are of course, terribly biased towards science. <laughs> But, yes, but, but which is a funny statement in itself. As yes, some, that is a weird <laughs> statement to make, given it takes a very long time to build up the ideas mm. to understand these kinds of things. Yeah, and for those of you who might be rattling in the comments saying if we are biased towards science, the, I guess we're trying our best to avoid bias, and that's what mm. science tries to do, which is often why we are very confused by people saying you're biased towards science. Mm. We're trying to, which is in itself, avoiding bias. Now, there's a whole whole philo- philosophical soup <laughs> running around in this this thing, so let's avoid it for now, I guess, and address it later on. Yeah. Um, so I think that wraps up our this episode. Now that we've called BS on this claim, um, yes. We- if you if you have countering points, I guess Alec and I are interested in hearing them. Yeah. And in later podcasts, we might address any points you might have. Mm. And we're also interested if there are any other topics you might want us to discuss. Um, and also, once again, thank you to the Center for the Public Awareness of Science for providing us with a brand new recording space. Mm. And yeah, it's going to make things a lot smoother from here on in. So I guess thanks for listening and hope to see you tune in next time. Thank you.